Welcome to Season 8 of The Global Inquirer. The Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. My name is Emma Ross, and I'm a third-year foreign affairs undergraduate at the university. I'll be your host for yet another riveting season of the podcast. Today, we are sitting down with Elizabeth Tamti, a second year in the College of Arts and Sciences, to bring you a story about data privacy. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you doing? I'm doing very well today. How are you? I am also well. I'm excited to start the season. So to start this episode off, I was thinking we should probably define a few things for our audience. So I was wondering if you could maybe start by explaining to us what the difference is between data privacy and data protection. Yeah, so we have data privacy is really thinking about internally what's going on when a company is collecting data on you. So it is about who's getting authorized access, and this is controlled by the company, and there's a little bit of user control as well with either opting into policies or agreeing to cookies, that sort of thing. On the other hand, we have data protection, and that's really externally thinking about data breaches and unauthorized access. So it's mechanisms that can kind of help a company make sure that they're protecting their data. Thank you, Elizabeth, for clarifying that. I was wondering if maybe between the two, there was one that consumers should be more concerned about. Yeah, so typically we hear on the news a lot more about data protection issues where there's a breach with a company, like you'll hear credit cards are stolen. And while this is definitely of concern for consumers, it's probably more important for consumers to be focused on their data privacy since they are able to exercise a little bit more control over how that data is being collected. I had a chance to speak with Professor Chris Maurer, who is the Assistant Professor of Commerce at the University of Virginia's School of Commerce, and he specializes in cybersecurity, risk management, IT governance and control, and he was able to address some of these challenges with data privacy. If my privacy is violated, then there is a certain level of personal impact from that violation, where as, as human beings, we can feel violated, really, is, is probably the best term, that how does this company know this about me? What are they doing with this information? And how are they potentially trying to manipulate me? Because most privacy issues come back to marketing and the use of the data. And so it, it's difficult for consumers to know exactly what companies are collecting about them, what they know about them, and how they're using that data, because there's not a lot of transparency in this space. Right. So when we talk about companies collecting data, what type of data are they, do they have the capability to collect? What sort of things are they tracking when consumers visit a site? Or like, what's kind of the depth of what they are able to access? Almost anything in terms of the obvious things are the behaviors that you that you exhibit on a website, on social media. So the things that you type in and post, the pictures you upload, that's all the obvious data points that are being collected. But the clicks, so when you enter a website, which website did you just come from? When you leave a website, where are you going next? Some companies have the ability to, to track those types of things. 
why do websites ask for cookies? Why do they care about my data? Yeah, so data is something that is proven extremely valuable for companies. They collect all sort of different data on you. And so first of all, cookies, for those who are unaware, are basically giving permission for the company to track what you're doing on their site. So like, for instance, if you're on a site buying clothes, like they might be looking at what you're putting in your shopping cart or what you're spending more time looking at. So that's the, when you see cookies, ask permission to use cookies, it's basically giving that website access to permission basically to track your different um, behavior on that website. So different ways a company can use the data that it collects on you is for their own purposes of just tracking consumer behavior, developing metrics, improving their marketing, like all those different reasons to make their own website better. But they can also use it by selling it to third parties. So this is a big cash cow basically for advertising. If they can basically develop a customer profile, selling that information allows more targeted advertising and therefore more successful advertising, which is highly desirable for any company looking to make money. Going back to what you said earlier, when a company collects my data, they put it into some sort of profile, but can you go a little bit further in telling me what kind of profile they're creating? Yeah, of course. So these data profiles are basically a combination of what these companies are able to learn about their consumers. So they build these profiles made up of this data and that's a really valuable piece that they can use in advertising. Professor Maurer expands a little bit more on this idea. Because the ultimate goal of most of this data is for advertising. All of the services and apps that we use, they're not free. You're paying for it with your data and the tracking of your behaviors. But, you know, it kind of feels like these ads, I mean, they're annoying, yes. But, you know, isn't it nice that I'm getting ads for something that I'm interested in rather than just some random products? Right. And that's one of the big trade-offs of having these tailored experiences is that when companies are able to collect so much data on their users, they're able to use it in ways that can benefit consumers with, like we said, getting advertisements that are more focused on your interests or leading you to a site that maybe you're also interested in. So they definitely provide a more convenient user experience. But that is to say it's not it doesn't come with its without any trade-offs because even though we're getting all this more specific, convenient, tailored experiences, we're also giving up a lot of our rights over our privacy to our data. It is personal data. They are able to use this in ways that we don't always know about. And I think it's important that while it's convenient for us to kind of ignore some of the downsides because we get a, some benefits from it, there are some long-term consequences of being able to just freely give up our personal data. Yeah, and when you said that, like, I'm giving up my freedom here, I don't remember agreeing to this. I don't remember checking any boxes that said, yes, I agree to have all of my information looked at. How did they get that? That's one of the crazy things is that a lot of users in the U.S. don't realize that they, by just being on sites and maybe agreeing to a privacy policy, they're signing away. They don't know what's in those privacy policies. A lot of the times they're written by lawyers. There are lots of jargon in them. And I mean, people don't read the terms of agreement. Anyways, so 
although it may feel like this is something that's going on without our knowledge, it's still going on. Professor Maurer was able to help explain a little bit more about the role privacy policies play with consumer awareness. Now, the one challenge with all of this is that most of the companies are, quote, being transparent. They have a privacy policy. And if you scroll to the bottom of almost any web page, there's a tiny little link, usually grayed out slightly so that it's difficult to find, and it includes their privacy policy. And if you open it up, it will outline all the data that's being collected, uh, how they're using the data, who they can and cannot share the data with in terms of their trusted third-party suppliers, and usually how you can opt out of the data collection process. Many privacy policies, however, are written by attorneys and they're almost impossible for the average person to make sense of. And they also don't provide the level of detail saying, we will track this when you click this, when you perform this action. They, they generalize and say, we will track web-based application behavior. And so what does that actually mean? How much data are they capturing when you interact with their web page? And so you can basically assume the worst that they're just monitoring everything but I wouldn't call that especially transparent because most users never even look at a privacy policy. Uh, it's very similar to a lot of apps as well. And, and with Apple, we constantly get a pop-up saying the iTunes terms of service have, have changed and you know all of these types of things. You just simply click OK. You accept it because if you want to engage with, the, with that product, that website, you have to click OK. And nobody ever reads it. I mean, it seems to me like these American corporations are getting very smart about how they collect all of our data, but this seems to be my experience as an American living in the U.S. Can you tell me if it's the same for a European citizen or for people living elsewhere? So, first of all, in the U.S., even though it seems kind of scary that we don't really have clear regulation addressing data privacy, there is some accountability in the fact that we find out when our data privacy is, is being used in ways that is against us, or we find out on the news when data is exposed in ways that is harmful to consumers. So even though we don't have a federal regulation specifically addressing this, there is pressure for companies to make sure they're not making mistakes that are going to lead to maybe legal issues further on. And that's why we're seeing a lot of grant, like you must, you got to grant access to have cookies or you got to agree to these privacy policies. So even though there isn't regulation, we still have some protection in the fact that, in the words of Professor Maurer, a court of public opinion on these companies, holding them accountable. This isn't the case everywhere. In Europe, they have much more stringent regulation. I mean, just the fact that they have actual regulation in the EU and addressing data privacy called the GDPR, General Data Privacy Regulation, and it was made in 2016, went into effect in 2018. And this is a very, it's the first really expansive policy that's specifically addressing data privacy. And it's kind of easier to think of it as like an opt-in model. You have to give permission for them to collect data on you. That's not the default. Where in the U.S., the default is that those companies are collecting your data. That's so interesting. I think usually 
I mean, I, I remember seeing stuff on websites like check here. We're going to look at your cookies. One, I didn't really know what cookies were. And two, I think I became so used to seeing it that I would just ignore it. But when I started looking at your research for this episode, I think I was going to look at one of the articles that you had put in your research. And immediately I saw like on the bottom of the site, it said this website is looking at your cookies automatically and you can opt out if you wish. But like I said earlier, in normal Emma mode, I don't care about that. I'm not looking at that. They're probably just going to get my data anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's the hard thing is that even even though you feel like you're having to give access for them to do it, you really don't have to. Just by being on sites, just by engaging with what they have to offer, it is kind of an implicit, yes, okay, you're going to be collecting data on me. Because there's kind of this mindset in the U.S. that you're visiting this company's site, therefore it's kind of under their jurisdiction. And it's when you think about how Europe has this GDPR and the U.S., we don't have any federal regulation. Although I should mention California has the CCPA, California Consumer Privacy Act, which it is not as in-depth as Europe's GDPR, but it is one of those good first steps of, in the U.S., how are we going to be addressing data privacy through regulation? But just thinking about it, it was kind of like, at first when I was seeing, like, Europe has this, why don't we have this in the U.S.? It really comes down to kind of American mindset and looking at whose priorities are really being met. So in the U.S., we have a lot of these big tech giants, I mean, Facebook, Google, Twitter, like you name it, those companies have a lot of influence over the type of policy and regulations that we have. And I think probably the main reason why we don't have a federal regulation is because we don't want to provide economic disincentives for these companies. Whereas in Europe, they don't have the same sort of environment of huge tech giants that provide huge benefits to their economy. So it makes sense why they're able to kind of enact some of this more stringent regulation. Whereas in the U.S., we just don't have that mindset. Yeah, that's so interesting because all of this seems like such new territory. I mean, it seems like the people who are in our government right now haven't had to deal with these problems for most of their careers. Having these new questions, you hear again and again, that the law is behind the times. Yeah, that's it. That's an interesting point because it's in this case totally new environment. Like this, when you think about the other legislation, GDPR, CCPA, it's like 2016, 2018. It's very recent. But this is. But then you think about, like you said, sometimes the law lags the times. But in this case, consumer awareness is actually lagging the governmental awareness, the response to this, which is just crazy to think because like most consumers are not concerned about data privacy. They don't even really understand what it means. And yet we have such minor regulation on this in this field, except if you're in Europe. So it's like one thing's behind, but then our consumers are even more behind the regulation. No, I think that's really interesting because I mean, you're saying that consumer awareness is the issue here and that if more people were more concerned about this, we would see regulation. I'm still kind of on the point here of um, what is there for consumers to be outraged about? What is the worst thing they can do with my data? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question to ask. And it's something that I definitely struggled with when I was first doing research on this because it's like, who cares if they know about me? But it's always one of those fundamental question of rights. It comes down to how far are you willing to give up your privacy rights in order to make this trade-off of convenience. So the way I see it is we need to act now if we don't want to get into a situation where like we're really regretting that we didn't act sooner on what the capabilities are of these companies to access our data. And another point is, and this is less about the bad things that can happen with to you personally about your data, but just the fact that it seems a little unfair that these companies are making huge amount of money based solely on information about you, that they can track your information. They extremely profitable. Like, I mean, it's even called like a personal information economy. So all of this is going on. All of these players are benefiting from your data and you're not getting to see any of that money. You're just kind of playing into that. So that to me is what angers me a little bit more than like concerns about how they're using this data. It just seems a little, the consumer feels a little out of the loop about how their data is being used. And that fundamentally to me seems wrong. I feel like consumers, it is not too much for us to ask that we know how our data is being used. And I think that's a great starting point for some of these regulations. Yeah, I think that's an especially good point about why consumers should be more informed and that all of this data trading shouldn't be going on behind a velvet curtain. And also here, I think it's an especially timely conversation that we're having because we are all spending so much more time on the internet and we're probably all accepting more cookies and going on more websites and the internet is collecting so much more data on us. So can you talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the market for consumer data. Yeah, so COVID-19, it's kind of allowed companies to collect more data on people just because there's a higher usage. But it's also provided, COVID-19 has kind of diminished the momentum of pressuring governments to enact regulation on addressing data privacy. Like when in 2018 and beginning of 2019 in the U.S., we saw tons of hearings. Like if you remember, Facebook was in the Senate hearing and there was a lot of this attention on data privacy. Like this is a concern, like we need to focus on this. And then we had coronavirus. So while coronavirus has kind of halted this focus, this scrutiny on data privacy. Where are we in 2020 now in terms of regulating data privacy in the context of COVID-19? Yeah, so on one hand, we have this loss of momentum that we saw directly before the coronavirus hit on pressuring some sort of regulation addressing data privacy. So that momentum has kind of stopped. We might see a pickup again after the coronavirus, most likely. But then on the other hand, there has been some concerns about contact tracing for people who may have the coronavirus. And there's a lot of private corporations who have been more willing to give up information to the government and to health officials to help track some of these movements. So that's one thing that's kind of an underlying data privacy connection during this coronavirus time. 
but to my knowledge, it hasn't been something that would translate directly to regulation. But I think it's definitely something that's keeping it on in the back of the public's mind. And so once we kind of address some of these immediate emergency situations with coronavirus, I think it's very likely that we're going to see a return to this focus on data privacy. That's kind of good news. I'll, I'll give it to us. We, we, we need a win nowadays. But shifting focus from COVID-19, moving into the question. So you were able to talk to a couple experts on this subject. I was wondering if we could move more into talking about what you learned from these experts about national data sovereignty. Yeah. So first of all, like what even is national data sovereignty? So this is an idea that kind of came out of the Snowden revelations. And basically, he exposed a lot of the intelligence gathering capabilities of the United States and actually um, exposed that the U.S. was collecting a lot of data on our friends and not only our foes in the international community. Nation states have a stake in the transmission of data and mostly for intelligence concerns if they have other countries that are collecting data on their consumers, this can provide some opportunities for like blackmail or just knowing more about the consumers. Some there's potential damages there, but it's also really in tension with the idea of free data goes across borders. And that's kind of the vibe you get from Silicon Valley. And they want global access to data. They want collaboration. So we have that kind of idea going on with corporations. And then we have this tension with the increasing, we're seeing increasingly nation states choosing to enact data sovereignty policy that's going to kind of limit that transmission of data. So I had a chance to talk to Mr. Rick Carew, who's a visiting lecturer of global commerce at the University of Virginia's School of Commerce. And he's also served as a reporter and senior editor for the Wall Street Journal and advised for some private sector companies. So he was able to speak a lot about how we really understand these different incentives for corporations, for consumers, and for governments um, and their ability to access data. For most companies in the technology space, they have a lot of different incentives that are happening all at the same time. So on one hand, it's a great branding exercise to argue that we protect your data privacy. We you know, are very much pro-consumer. On the other hand, they obviously have to comply with government rules and regulations uh, in order to maintain their licensing and ability to do business. And then of course, what I think probably you would you would hear from most executives at companies in Silicon Valley is the importance that data plays in their ability to customize products for consumers, in some cases selling that data to third parties. But there's just so much value in a the kind of modern internet economy to the collection of data, the understanding of consumer preferences. And there's just, there's so many levels where that data can be useful. So uh, most companies really, you know, without the absence of regulation, they would prefer to collect uh, as much data uh, on individuals as they can. There are some benefits. There are actually quite a few benefits for a company to have data stored in that same country where they're being housed. And Mr. Rick Carew was able to speak, address a case study about the this very issue is a reason 
Uber had to pull out of China. So they entered the Chinese market 2014-2015, and very soon afterwards, China passed regulation in 2016, the cybersecurity law, and this made it force corporations to store their data in that country. And this proved too expensive for Uber because having your data stored in one country while all your engineers are in another country makes it difficult to analyze that data. So they pulled out of the market and it exposed this idea of how a government can really control a lot of what goes on in their borders and have increased access to data if it's housed in that same country. Interesting. So you mentioned Uber. Let's talk about another hot button data story that's been going on, the story of TikTok. I mean, we've all heard the proposed regulations that, you know, TikTok can no longer be downloaded in the U.S. if China has a certain amount of stake in it. So we've all been following the news stories of different companies making bids to sell different shares. But that's just generally what's been going on. So I was wondering if in your conversations, you got down to a little bit more specifics or have data security takeaways from that news story? Yeah, definitely. So there's actually quite a few issues of data privacy going on with TikTok. So one of those is kind of an ongoing legal issue with allegedly TikTok not providing careful enough scrutiny of its underage users, and more specifically, users under the age of 13 who are supposed to have parental consent to share data. So you can definitely see how TikTok might not be following through with this particular requirement. So that's one issue. Another issue, and this is one that's been addressed through uh, Trump passed an executive order over the summer, which was supposed to ban all downloads of TikTok in the U.S., and his concern was more with potential censorship by the Chinese government of content that U.S. viewers are able to see and not just what Chinese viewers see on TikTok. So there's also, yeah, this issue of censorship that was like, even though this ban was an executive order, it's been stalled and there's a bunch of legal issues with it. So I, I think people are safe if they're going to, if they're planning on downloading TikTok anytime soon. For TikTok and for the U.S. going forward is how do we manage foreign-owned apps or you know online services that then might transfer data to other countries where the governments might not be allies or we might have disputes with. So now that we're bringing TikTok into the story, I'm going to take a step back. So we acknowledge that TikTok is a Chinese-based company. I'm going to propose to you a question about data privacy. So let's say on one end of the spectrum, you have a country in which the system is very much your data is protected. No one can get to it unless they jump through a bunch of hoops. And maybe on that side, you were explaining that seems to be more like the EU. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, you might have a case in which your data is very much viewable by the government or other parties. And this seems to be more the case of China. So I was wondering after the research that you've done, where the U.S. kind of falls on this spectrum, closer to the EU side or closer to the China side? Well, for China, there's, a, there's definitely a difference between the government being able to access consumer data and companies accessing that data. Mr. Rick Carew spoke about this differentiation for Chinese consumers between 
how they view their government accessing their data, and how they view companies accessing their data. The government censors in real time, and this is just commonly known by Chinese consumers. However, they actually have the cybersecurity law, which is more of that protection on data privacy. So there's kind of these two issues of data privacy, which you could actually argue is more lacking in protection in the US than in China, and this other issue of, or if you see it as an issue of government censorship, where that's definitely the case in China and in the US, we don't really have that coming into play. So going back to your original question, in the US, our data is protected from external breaches and this we have great protection, although we do not have a lot of data privacy rights and we actually have less, you could argue, than in China. But in terms of government censorship, in China, that is definitely something that is commonly understood to and constantly occurring. Whereas in the US, we don't have those same expectations of government censorship. However, we do have our government accessing personal data when it comes down to issues of intelligence, of security, and of just classic law and order. For instance, Google will hand over emails to the government if there's a subpoena for them to see that and it's relevant in a court case. So that's something that is US citizens have been willing to allow their government to access that sort of data, data for those sort of purposes, whereas they would definitely not, it would not fly in the US if there was government censorship of content. Basically, consumers need to make the decision of where, of how they evaluate the trade-off between willing to give up their data privacy and then the benefits that are offered to them by giving up that data privacy. So for some consumers, this is gonna mean they wanna pay closer attention to privacy policies. They wanna take things into their own hand and make sure that they are not giving up too much data. And for others, this might mean that we're just going to continue on as normal and we don't care who sees our data. Interesting. So stepping back for a moment, I'm curious not just about American trends, but about what international trends in data security we can be expecting to see. Yeah, so I definitely think as data collection capabilities increase, we're going to see an increase of these national sovereignty policies that countries are gonna enact uh, to limit the transmission of data. So that's one big trend. And I think we're also gonna see companies really focus on analyzing global data trends. So we have these two different ideas of on one hand, we're having more regulation that's limiting the flow of transmission. And on the other hand, it's becoming even more important for companies to be able to access data, analyze it, and tailor user experiences. So those are some of the trends. And Mr. Rick Carew also mentioned some how these different trends are kind of interacting. So here's what he said about this. You kind of have these cross currents of companies wanting more data, governments trying to restrict and control the transmission of data. And I think underlying both of those trends is just the growing awareness and importance of the value that data has for everybody. So the data that you generate on social media, you know, that data is, is valuable in understanding you as a consumer and being able to micro-target you. 
And I think the fact that you are seeing the micro-targeting of individuals or marketing to individuals based on you know, really specific data, I think it's also made consumers much more aware of how much of their individual data is out there and being used by companies and also accessible to governments. This was a really interesting discussion that we've had here, and I feel like I've learned a lot, but I think here in these last few minutes, I was wondering if you had key takeaways for our audience. Yeah, definitely it comes down to consumers have to value their data. It's already being valued, like we heard from our different interviewees. It's already being valued by companies and by countries. And I think the next step is for consumers to kind of take back some of that control, pay more attention to data privacy, and realize that their pressure can help change this environment and that this is going to become even more important as we go into the future and data plays an even bigger role in our lives. As far as actionable steps for our listeners, here's Professor Mao with some advice. My best advice would be assume that an organization is collecting as much data as possible about you and be aware of the tools that you have at your disposal. Um, because many companies do offer you to limit the, the tracking of certain types of data. So when you are exploring options to adopt a new digital product, uh, spend a few minutes to actually review the, the privacy settings within that app or on that website. And if you are not comfortable, then certainly opt out of, of those types of data tracking options. That's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer, and thank you to Elizabeth Tamti for bringing us this week's story. Additionally, a special thanks to Professor Chris Maurer and Mr. Rick Carew for their insight. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. And tune in next week for the continuation of Season 8.